And some people probably calling me Sambo right now, right? Oh, we don't want that this morning. We don't want that this morning. We don't want that. All right, two quick announcements before we jump in. All right, as by the grace of God, um, all of us know about our, our dear brother Carl and, and the Sanders family. Um, by, great, by the grace of God, he's doing pretty well right now. He's doing well. And uh, so the Sanders want to sort of reconvene a tradition that they've had every around Christmas time where they have an open house at their house. So they're going to do it again next Sunday from 5 p.m. to midnight. Okay? It might not be no food if you come to that towards the end. But they want to do this. If you're a member of the church, you will get an email with particular instructions. But I do want to let you know that they are looking for contributions, food contributions, particularly with salad, sweetbreads, pound cake, pumpkin cake roll. That's like very specific. I hope you make it. <laughs> Cookies, bars, chips, and fruit. So if you, if you make all that stuff and you do a good job, just bring it next Sunday to me. And I'll make sure they get it. I will be there at 11.30 with half a platter. All right, so you'll get an email from me, those of you who are members of the church, so that you can have the particulars if you don't know the address. But let's bless them by swinging through. Anytime between 5 and 12, come by and say hello and bring something besides yourself. If you don't, then you'll still be able to eat whatever somebody else is willing to share with you off their plate. All right. Also, in three weeks, we will be doing a Christmas service on Sunday, Christmas Day. So I know we talked about back and forth about maybe can we do something for Friday and Sunday, and it's like, nah, fam, we're going to do Christmas Day. And let me tell you why. Because how do you celebrate a day about Jesus and not come to church? That was weird. Like, hey, let's, let's celebrate Christ by staying home from church. It's too much of that right now already. I don't, want, I don't want any problems. I don't want any problems this morning. The soccer team lost. I'm already feeling. I don't want no problems. No emails. All right, let's jump in. We, gotta, we, have, we have a lot to talk about. And I want to apologize in advance for today's message because we are going to go a little deep today. Okay, so I apologize in advance. We're going to go just a little deep today. So we'll start off on something that's kind of, okay, that makes sense. And then we're going to go a little, we're going to get the shovel out and go a little deeper today. All right, so apologies in advance. Uh, by God's grace, we, we put these on the web so you can go back and watch them. But it's good for God's people to get a little deeper on a Sunday. So today, we're going to go a little deeper today. All right, now we... We are in a series called The Supernatural Storyline of Scripture, and, and each week, you know, we try to tell you some things to make sure that you have in your mind. So I want to do that again this morning, and, because, and the reason why is because when we read the Bible, when we don't understand, like, what's happening or different places or words or what this means, we, we instinctively think of the Bible as a sort of organized randomness. Right? We might not use those terms, but we just kind of think like, okay, I know it has, it's kind of, these things are like random, you know, kind of like you dropped your keys. That, that doesn't fit into the grand scheme of stuff that's happening in your life. 
We think of the Bible as organized randomness when we don't always understand things that are going on. So we kind of dismiss it. Now, in this series, I've tried to explain and show that there is nothing in the Bible that is not intentionally crafted by God. And the language that he uses is not coincidence, but providence. It's not coincidence that he says this over here and says this over here. It's intentional. You know, people, there are people who boast and say, well, I'm a perfectionist. Okay, I laugh at that. But God is the perfectionist. And he's very meticulous, down to the minute details. When he told them in the Old Testament, this is how you build a tabernacle, it was like, cut this much wood and make it this length and not more than this and use this particular color and move this right here and put this over on this side and put this right there. God's not leaving anything open to the imagination in that sense, but he's very specific about what he wants to see happen, and it's no different when he uses other descriptive terms in the Bible, which is why we do things like biblical theology, which is essentially we can take a theme and trace it all throughout the Bible. We do that. Let's take this word and, or this idea and see how far it goes. Where does it begin? Where does it end? It's often called typology in literary terms, where you take this theme and just carry it through. It's similar to allegory. Something's allegorical, but the difference between typology and allegory is that allegory isn't rooted in real historical events. You see, we don't just make up things and let's trace a thread all the way through, but there's actually real historical moments that you take and you trace through the Bible and the Lord opens your eyes up. Today, we're going to do that again. Last week, we looked at Genesis 1, let there be light and there was light. And we looked at John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and Jesus is the light. The light of men, the light shines in the darkness. We saw this creation language that that John is giving us a pre-Genesis 1 creation moment saying that Jesus is the light that lights the world. And in the middle of that message, I asked this question to you all. It was rhetorical because we don't really care for the studio audience to speak until afterwards. (laughs) But I asked this question. Why does John in John 1 begin with describing Jesus as the word. Why does he use that language? And I said last week, well, he's comparing, remember that the Bible is the competitive clarification of reality. God is writing a story, clarifying what the other divine evil beings that rebelled against him have communicated to the people that they oversee in the world. And so we have all these competing narratives from different civilizations. We call them religions. God calls them lies from cosmic powers of darkness. And so he clarifies reality. The Bible is clarifying who is the God that did this. And so I said that the reason why that Jesus is called the word is because the other gods, they don't speak. They don't speak. And I said that they create. Their creation narratives have them creating, having sex, They betray and try to destroy each other. They provide like rain and gods of fertility, but they don't speak. 
not the way Yahweh does. And we read Jeremiah 10, 1 through 20, and, I, and particularly verse 5, it says this. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. And they have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Their gods are crippled. Well, today, we need to double down on this idea of Jesus as the word. And the reason why is because this idea of the word of God is so oversaturated in many of our minds that we shrug off its significance. Jesus is the word. He's the voice of God, the mouthpiece of God. But there's something a little deeper. So this morning, by the help of him, I intend to give three reasons why Jesus being the word is significant. We'll start off and we'll go a little deeper by the end. And hopefully it makes sense. Hopefully you'll stay to the end. If not, pray for the U.S. men's national soccer team. (laughs) Father, we thank you for this moment. And I pray that you would allow me to communicate effectively what I believe you've given me to communicate. But I also know that, Lord, my personality, my preaching style, whatever I bring doesn't mean anything. It's you. You will make people see, understand, believe, celebrate, and rejoice. I can only communicate as best as I can in my finite ability what I believe to be true from your word. So, Lord, I'm asking that they would hear a much better sermon than I'm capable of preaching because you would open up their hearts and their minds to see it and love it if it's true. If what I'm saying, Lord, is not true, then I pray that it would be stricken from the memory and we would just move on. For you don't need me. Redemptive history is not hanging in the balance of what I teach today. So if I'm an error, Lord, then please forgive me and let them forget. But where I'm right and where it's true, then let it burn in their hearts as I believe you've had this burn in my heart for the last couple of days. Give me grace, skill to speak this morning. I rely not on historical repetition, but the spirit in this moment. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, three reasons why Jesus is the word is significant. The first is what I'm calling personal providence. Personal providence. Let me explain what providence is from the evangelical dictionary of biblical theology. I like this definition. That's why I'm using it. It says providence is the sovereign, meaning all control, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that is consistent with their created nature, all to the glory of God. Paraphrase. That God is so working in humanity that he brings about what humanity is supposed to do, what's supposed to happen, using the way he created things to be, right? So a frog will never act like a dog. It will always be a frog, but it will accomplish God's purpose in that way. Sadly, humans can act like dogs, but that's not today's message. In God's providence... He is in control of all things, and that is the underlying premise that is taught in the Scriptures. 
There is no point in the Bible, no narrative, that God is not sovereign in control over. There's none. There's not a point in the Bible where it's like, man, God was shocked. The only time in the Bible where God seemed shocked is when Jesus, in his humanity, did not allow himself to know how everyone would respond to stuff that he did because he couldn't be fully human if he knew how everyone would respond. And there were times when he did stuff like heal a man born blind and they didn't believe him. And, G and it said that Jesus marveled at their lack of faith. He, he literally was like, wow, you guys are tripping right now. I just healed a man born blind? And you guys are saying the devil does that? He was like, huh? The devil's the one who blinds people. He said, I'm, he, he was like, he was surprised, like, wow, you people are really wilding right now. I would say that that gave him compassion for people because he realized, wow, that sin has so darkened their ability to see that I need to be even more patient with these people. But here's the thing about providence. Here's the thing about providence. Mesopotamians and other ancient societies also believed in a certain type of providence from the gods that they worshiped. It's not uniquely Christian to think God is in control. Mesopotamians believe, listen to this, the gods assembled each year to determine the next year's fate. It was called Simtu. The next year's fate for each person and event. The gods themselves were controlled by whichever god held the tablet of destinies. This is straight Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? So the gods, is, this is what they truly believed. The Mesopotamians, ancient civilization that Israel was in contact with. They believed that their gods gathered annually and decided the fate of every person and event in the world annually. And whoever had the tablet of destinies got to do it. So everyone's sitting there watching, hey man, so what you gonna do to such and such? I think I'm going to, you know, that's what they were doing. This is why they do things to try to influence their gods through different kinds of worship so that they would think favorably of them. It said they believed this. Egyptians viewed the gods as controlling nature and events. They performed rituals to entice desired outcomes from gods. Other ancient societies perceived death as faith's principal determinant. So here's faith. If you die, that's the principal determinant of faith. Even the gods could die in other religions. Here's the thing about all of those. I could name more. None of their gods communicate if this is true. They either believe or view it, but they don't have certainty that it's true because their gods don't speak. This, is, this isn't providence, it's speculative. It's speculation. Let's, based on what we see happen in the world, this is what we think our gods do, so let's do this in order to win their favor. These gods don't speak. Without the word of God, we could only speculate like other religions as to what is true. If we had hieroglyphics like the Egyptians do, we are putting together pieces from pictures. 
okay, let's do this. It'd be like Soul Train when you're trying to put the words together. Like, all right, I think, I think this means this. Some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about. I get it. Some of y'all don't get it. Some things aren't for everybody. This is why their creation stories are so wild, because their gods don't audibly speak and communicate. They don't. They don't explain how things come to be. This is also the reason why there are multiple creation stories in our Bible that give us different angles of understanding who God is, who Jesus is, and how this all comes together. We don't just have Genesis 1. We have multiple scenes in the Bible that explain creation because we can't handle one scene. We got to understand it from all these different angles. And God communicates all of it. Because if we didn't have the word of God, we'd speculate. And then we'd be all over the place. I mean, think about people you know who can't handle the word rightly. How many sermons have you heard where a pastor was just way off the mark? And you're sitting there like, that's not what that passage means. Like, oh, man, I don't know what's going on. In order for us to really understand why Jesus is the word of God, we have to look at one more creation narrative. There's another creation narrative in the Bible, in the New Testament, that brings more light to the reality of the situation. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV translation. That's like sneezing and that's sneeze worship right there. That's when you, it's like sneeze praise. It's like a whole different category. If you could sneeze like that, the Lord is with you. Never seen that. I almost put my hand up. and was like, hey. Hebrews 1, beginning of verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke, listen to the words, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You should ask questions like this when you read passages like that. Why is he emphasizing speaking so much? It's, it's in there three times. Some kind of God has spoken to us, spoken to our fathers by the prophets. That's a distinction. That's how he's starting off talking about the glory and radiance of God is that he's spoken. Not that he did stuff, but that he said something. He spoke. Why the emphasis on speaking? He says, God spoke to our forefathers. Then he says, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Why is this so important? Why didn't he say he did this and he did this and he did this? He's like, no, no, no. He said this. He told us that. And then third, it says in verse three, he upholds the universe by the word of his power, not by his power, but by the word of his power. And there's the providence upholds. That's the providence, upholds. 
He's upholding the universe by the word of his power. He didn't just create the world. He's upholding it. Why is Jesus the word? Why are they emphasizing speaking? Because without the word, nothing would exist. Nothing would exist. If Jesus ceases to be the word, the universe ceases to exist because he upholds the universe. Right? It wasn't like, yeah, he upholds the nation. He upholds the city. Not even that he upholds the earth. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is personal providence. Now, providence doesn't need to have personal before it. But I'm saying that because a lot of people believe in providence, but their gods are not personal in the same way. Actually, their gods at best are deists. You know what deism is, where the God creates everything, kind of winds it up like a clock and just watches what everyone does. That's what a lot of people think that are Christians, that Christians think that. The founding fathers of our nation were not theists, they were deists. It's like God does this, and so when God does that, he's not involved, so we just do whatever we want and hope that it all works out in the end. But God is a theist and his personal providence. He's like, no, nah, I'm right here. I'm involved in this. So when you go through this and you're suffering, that's not because it's something... It's not the universe. That's not some gods deciding every year, all right, he's going to get his leg hurt today. That's not what's like, oh, he's going to get sick this year. No, that's God saying, okay, this is going to happen, and I'm going to work through this for my glory and bring them through it so that when they're done, they're going to stand up and testify to their church that the toughest thing they've ever been through, they're grateful for because God used it. Yeah. No one says that about suffering unless you believe a personal God is helping you through it. But even the world says, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Even they understand providence to some degree. These civilizations were not in personal relationship with their gods. You know why? Because evil supernatural beings don't have personal love for people. To be in relationship, you communicate with people. You meet two people who are in love and they say they never talk. You'd be like, really? How in the world do y'all work that out? Y'all just be miming all the time. <laughs> Even people who can't verbally talk use sign language because it's a communication. You need communication to have personal relationship. That's why these people don't have personal relationships with these gods. These cosmic powers of darkness are not about clarity because words bring clarity. Uh, yeah. Words bring clarity. They're not about clarity. They're about confusion. That's why the Bible says God is not the author of confusion. Why? Because I've said what needs to happen. Clarity is why God speaks. Clarity. You see this in Genesis. Let there be this. Let us make man in this. Let us do this. It doesn't say nothing that God, everything that God said he was going to do, he, he did, he explained it first. The next day, that's how you know it's a new day. Let us do this. All the lettuce, not salads. Let us. I had a wonderful salad last night. 
It's more, more meat than lettuce, but it, I'm trying, I'm working it, I'm getting it. Don't judge me. All those let there be's, that words of creation, are God clarifying which God created the world. And it's the God that you serve created the world. Let me clarify, in creation, that's the Old Testament. Then Jesus comes in the New Testament and says, let me clarify, in the recreation. So God, he says, let there be in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus says stuff like this. You've heard it was said, but I tell you. Why is he doing that? Let me clarify for you the word of God. And since I'm the word of God, I'm the one sufficient enough to explain to you what you thought versus what is true. This is why they were like, man. He speaks with an authority that the Pharisees don't. This dude wasn't even, he wasn't even trained. Who did he train under? The trainer doesn't train. He doesn't train. The cosmic powers of evil can't, they, they too, it's too small. Jesus says stuff like this in Matthew 5. This is the word of new creation, right? Recreation. We're a new creation. How? Because the word came and re-explained things, clarified what it means to be a people of God. So Jesus says this in like Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, that's the clarification, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is by the throne of God, and it says by earth, because it is his footstool. Clarification. He says this in Matthew, a couple verses later. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what was said. But Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wait a minute, Jesus. How are you going to tell us what the word of God says that God spoke to Moses? Oh, because before Abraham was, I am. I'm the one who spoke to Moses. This isn't coincidence. This is providence. Jesus is the word of God because without the word, nothing would exist. And so by saying that Jesus is the word and that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, they're clearly trying to help us understand that the God that you think created the world was actually the dude that you didn't think was anything that you killed. Let's move on. Let's go a little deeper. Just a little bit. We're answering the question, why is Jesus called the word of God? Word of God, here's the second reason. And to do that, we're going to do a brief Biblical theology on the word of God. I want to travel just really quickly through the scriptures just to make this connection. To answer the question, why is Jesus the word of God? Beginning in Genesis, we see this at the end of Genesis chapter 1, right? So God has spoken, said these things. He's clarifying. His word is there. He's making sure that everyone knows this is what I've created this. It's not their gods that did this, but your God created this. Their gods, they too small. And he says this in Genesis 1, beginning in verse 28. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living, every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So here you have the word of God that's bringing creation, clarity, and unity. This is all, they all works together. Okay, let me, let there be light. Jesus, let's light this up and let's create, let's separate the, the darkness, make it night and day. Then let's, let's separate the waters so the waters and the land are different. And then let's add animals in the water. Let's add ant plants on the earth and let's put animals there. Now let's create another and it all is unified. It all works together. That's why God said it was good. God doesn't do disunity. He's not the author of confusion. He's the author of clarity. Here's how it all works, unity. That's always who God is. The Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit have always been in perfect unity. This is why the emphasis of unity in the church is so important because you're a reflection of who God is. That's why the Bible says stuff when people cause division have nothing to do with them. It doesn't say be patient and coddle them. It says get them out of the place because when you call division, you do exactly what Satan does. And so we see initially this wonderful word of unity. And then you get to Genesis 3. And another divine being communicates. This is the word of disunity. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Expressing doubt. Are you sure? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden that are in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Disunity. What God said is good and unifying. What I'm saying is disunity. I'm trying to separate you from the unity that you have with God. He said, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that there was a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Bam. This other word brings in disunity. It wasn't the word of God, the word of a demigod. And here are the consequences. In Genesis 3, 16. Besides sin coming into the world and death, he says this to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Ladies, this is who you blame the need for epidural on. Eve did this to you. Your desire, listen to this, shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
Hannah wasn't supposed to rule over Eve. She's a suitable helper, the way God designed it. You have to rule? No, he told you to rule over the animals of the field and stuff. Why do you need to rule? Because now there's disunity in the marriage. She will desire to rule over her husband. It's not going to work anymore in a unified manner. He says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. And in pain, you shall eat it all the days of your life. There's now no unity between man and earth. That unity is gone. When I created it and it was good, you was going to go out, you was going to love working. <laughs> Rake real quick, boom, there it is. Throw down the seed, there's the food. Babe, can you go get me? Yep, let me just throw a seed down real quick. It'll be ready in about two minutes. But when sin comes in, there's disunity. Now, you beefing with the earth. The earth became your op, right? Right? Thorns and, and, and you know, you ever get stuck by a sticker briar? And they just scrape your skin up. You'd be like, dang, that's Adam's fault. Well, it's your fault because you weren't paying attention, but it's ultimately Adam's fault. There's disunity. The next word is disunity. And this disunity, it carries on. It has consequences because then in verse 23 of Genesis 3, they're, they're put out of the garden. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work from the ground for which he was taken. Now you're separated. The unity that you have with God is now broken because another word came in that was a disunifying word. And now that is taking dominance. He drove the man out, verse 24, at the east of the garden, and he placed the cherubim there. So not only are you separated, we're disunified. I can't even let you get close in the same way anymore. So I got somebody guarding it in case you try to sneak back in. Disunity becomes a central theme, and this disunity is essentially trying to justify sin. The disunity, this other word, is now, let's, hey, the same thing that Satan did. Are you sure that God said that? Nah. You can bite that fruit. And here's his justification. God knows you'll be like him. There isn't a temptation that you or I experience that doesn't have some form of justification, and it's why we do it. There isn't a, there's no sin that we're too, we cannot resist. But we will find ways, even if it's subtle, to justify. I'm tired. I'm lonely. I'm hurt. It's been a long day. I don't feel well. I don't feel like going. I'm not really close with them. I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. I'm we have different interests. I hate my job. I don't like this. All these things are subtle justifications that let you be like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Further evidence for this point of this other word justifies sin. Look at Genesis 4. Here's what God says to Cain before he kills his brother Abel. He says this, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? I love that language. That's the type of way I told him, why your face laying down so low? When I was a kid, my friend's mother used to be like, stick that lip in before I walk all over. She was applying verse 6. Now, I don't even know what she believed back then. 
And he says this in verse 7. This is what he said to Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, listen, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is, listen to what he says, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So here's Cain. After sin comes into the world, right, God talks about it as if it's this thing, a person even. But it's a way that it's going to justify for Cain to kill his brother. And he says, its desire is contrary to you. That's not even who you are. It's contrary to who you are. So who are you going to listen to? And we know what happened. This, this word of disunity becomes the dominant theme. And then we get to Genesis 11. Tower of Babel. Listen to the language here. Beginning of verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and, and burn them thoroughly. And they, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build a city, build ourselves like a city in a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Think about what's being said there. We're going to get into this when we get there, but I just want to make one point now. Think about what's being said there. Listen to all the let us language. Let's create. Let's create. Let us do this, and let us make this, and let us do this, and let us do this. This is intentional language from let us make man in our image. Let us make man, but no, let us make a city. Instead of going out like God said, let's go up and replace him. Replace him. Here's what God says about this in verse 6. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Why does he need to confuse the language? And why does he acknowledge? This is God talking, right? This isn't, this, the Lord says, hey, look, they all have one language. They all have one language. You know why? Because words, language, unifies, even if it's disunity. This is, this is what God is saying. Look, they're unified in having the same language. They have the same mind, and nothing will be impossible for them. God is saying this. The one who created them is saying the fact that they have the same language means that they're unified in their disunity and they will be impossible to stop because they all can communicate a unified sinful disposition. We'll get there eventually, so I don't want to say much more. But God confuses the language. Somehow a unified language means that whatever humanity wants to do is possible. It's words. Language is powerful. Words are powerful. It's one of the chief ways that we're like God. We communicate. Animals can't communicate like us. This is why movies like Planet of the Apes were so fascinating. Because it's like this is what Darwin and what hope happens. Nah, fam. 
words create. Listen to them. Come, let us make bricks and burn them. Let us do this. You can be unified in disunity. You can be unified if you have a like-minded cause. How do you think Black Lives Matter was able to have people marching all over the world having the words Black Lives Matter written on major streets? Didn't you have a lot of black people in them? And the people, the ladies who led it were corrupt. They were corrupt. They were witches. They said this about themselves. I'm not judging them. This is what they said. They said we practiced witchcraft. They were satanic, but they unified all these people. You call it whatever you want, but that was a unified, crazy front that a slogan helped create. That unity wasn't for God's glory. They weren't unified by God. And Babel is not unified by the word of God. Because they said, let's do this so that we don't have to spread out into the world like God said. That's what they said. Let us make a man for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they knew that God said, go throughout the earth and, 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 and be fruitful and multiply. And they were like, nah, we're not going over there. We're going, to, we're going to take him down. And God said, man, these people have one language. They're unified, but it's not under the word of God. So God confuses the language, causing further disunity until a time when the unified word would return and bring everything back under one unified word, one voice. And so then you get to Pentecost in Acts 2. Here's what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered at one place. This is Acts 2, verse 1, beginning. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in another tongue, in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Think about this. So God confuses the language and they create all these nations. Then all these nations are back and then God gives them a word, a tongue, communication. Skipping down to verse 12. And it says, all, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? They were like, man, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They recognize, wait a minute, you're not from where I'm from. How are you able to speak with such clarity in my language when I know you're from way over there? When you read passages like this, ask yourself the question, why did God make tongues the issue? He could have done so many other things that make people be like, God is here. Let's get it. But he said, nope. When everyone is gathered, all these nations, I'm going to reunify them under one word, under one voice, my voice the Son, the Word of God. So all the civilizations that God separated through confusing the language, now he's bringing back together and they can all understand each other's language. 
tongues isn't about just some individual gift that you sit in church or a pastor's like, no, tongues is because God is saying the one unifying word of God is now bringing people back together. It's bringing people back together. Pentecost redeems Babel. Pentecost is Babel's redemption. Let me confuse the language, and now let me redeem the confusion. And now people can hear all this stuff in the language, and they're like, wait a minute, how is this happening? And not just are they speaking in language, they said that in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. So it wasn't like they were just talking a bunch of crazy stuff, and they were like, man, how did you know where I was at yesterday? It's like, no, they're speaking the mighty works of God in a language that's not from them. What is going on here? Somebody said, man, they was drinking a little bit this morning, bro. And then Peter was like, nah, that's not what happened. Let me explain to you why this is happening. The unifying word of God is bringing this all together. And lastly, you see this unity of the word in eternity. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God, clothed in white, white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, a unified voice. Mind you, they're standing before the throne of God in different languages, but they're able to have a unified voice to worship. And saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down and they worshipped. So all these different languages that God used to confuse, he redeemed to bring under the submission of one word. The word of God, Jesus. I personally believe... I personally believe, and I can't prove this from scriptures. This is just what I think. I personally believe that every language that God created here will exist. I think everyone's going to speak their native language. We're just going to understand it. I'm going to know that you're speaking Swahili, but I understand what you're saying. It's like having a personal translator everywhere you go. God doesn't need to make everyone speak the same language. He's like, I created these languages and I redeemed them. So in heaven, you're going you're to praise me with those languages that I created that I gave you to use on earth. But now it's going to be all under one unifying word, one loud voice. The same way that Babel had one voice to try to take over me, you're going to have one loud voice to worship me. It's the unifying word of God. This is what he's saying. Even down to this in Romans 14, verse 10. Verse 11, he says this, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess. It's important that every tongue confess, not just knee bow. Why does every tongue need to confess? Because words bring clarity. Who is you? Who are you? Why are you bowing? Because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the word of God because he brings clarity. You see, Genesis 1, it begins with a unified allegiance to the word of God. Revelation, it ends with a unified allegiance to the word of God. So Jesus is the word. 
Why do you think he says, my sheep will hear my voice? My sheep hear my voice. There's a reason why those of us in this room who are genuine believers can look at stuff and be like, yeah, right. I'm not believing that. We might laugh. We might chuckle. We might be grieved like, man, what? Because you hear his voice. You're unified under the word of God. All right. Last layer. A little deeper. Stay with me. Jesus is the word of God. As it relates to Jesus's people, as it relates to the people of God, their first introduction to the word of God was written on stone tablets. Remember that when they stood at Mount Sinai, all they could hear was thunder and trumpets. And they were like, nah, we're not trying to go up. <laughs> Moses, you, yeah, you're going up. If we go up, we're going to die. The, their first understanding of the word was written on stone, stone tablets. Listen to this in Exodus 20, 18 to 21. This is after the Ten Commandments were spoken. Listen to what it says. Now all the people saw the thunder and flashes of light and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. I'd have been right with them. You would have too. I don't care if you're a risk taker or not. You wouldn't have seen. You don't want that smoke. And said to Moses, you speak to us. We'll listen. But do not let God speak lest we die. They couldn't even hear it. It was trumpet. They didn't even understand what he was saying. So the people stood far off. So Moses goes up and God writes his word. So their first introduction to the word is written on stone. Exodus 31, 18. And he gave to Moses, when he finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This was their first introduction to the word of God. It was written on stone. Moses, during the golden calf, comes down, sees the people in sin. He breaks, throws the stone tablets down, the word of God, breaks them in frustration about where they are. And then God has them rewrite those, all right? So here's what it says in verse Exodus 34, beginning in verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you in Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank, and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So Moses is bringing the word to them, and their first understanding of the word of God is written on stone. Now, I'm actually glad this scene happened back then and not today. Because it said Moses... <laughs> It said he did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his talking to God. If that would have happened today, they'd have been trying to get Moses to make some skincare products. You know it. You know it's true. And there's women in this room that would have been like, I love his skin. <laughs> you know it. My wife would have been at Sephora. Do y'all have that Moses shown? They love this skin, selling skincare products. I'm glad this happened back then. 
and not right now. But you know what else is crazy about this, this scene? And Moses did not know the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. That same Moses later said in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. And this is why the Jews are always asking, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? Is he the prophet? Because they're waiting for the prophet that Moses said. And then you get to Matthew 17, which we looked at before, at the transfiguration. And it says, and he was transfigured before them. And guess what? His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared then Moses and Elijah talking with him. So the only two times in the Bible where someone's face shone like sun because they're in the presence of God are Moses and now Jesus. And Moses is there with Jesus talking. That face shone like the sun that Moses said the prophet will be like me, even down to the detail of that. God is communicating. He is who he was talking about. Believe him. But that's not the connection I'm making. A sidebar. So the word of God is first introduced as stone. That's the introduction. Stone. And then you get to this crazy scene in Acts chapter 4. And this is what Peter and John, standing before the Sanhedrin, all the religious leaders, here's what they say. Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man that's standing before you well. It's talking about someone who was healed. This Jesus is the stone that you re that rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So this Jesus is the stone that is rejected by you, builders, that has become the cornerstone. You know, cornerstone is the central foundation of any, of any structure. He said, this Jesus, whom you rejected, is the stone that you all killed. Now, this language is taken from Psalm 18, verses 22 and 23, but it's also spoken of in Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Jesus also uses this in the Gospels to the Pharisees. The stone that you reject is the cornerstone. Now remember, Jesus is the word, and the first time that the word was introduced to his people was on stone. Stone tablets. Then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus is saying the stone that the builder is rejecting is the cornerstone. Hmm. Jesus is saying, I'm the stone that the builders rejected. You builders reject. I'm the word that was written on stone that the builders rejected. I'm the word the stone that you are rejecting. My day yet, let's, let's keep going. This is a current reality, as Jesus is saying this, and they're saying this to the, to the current, in the, in the narrative at least, it's current, it's historical for us. It says that he's the stone that you've rejected. 
It's a historical reality. In Exodus 25 through 27, in your Bible, you'll see all these little sub-markings. It'll say stuff like this. Contributions for the sanctuary, right? The Ark of the Covenant. The table of br for bread. The gold lampstand. The bronze altar. The court of the tabernacle. Right? These are all things that the original Israelites and the leaders who were the original builders of the tabernacle understood. And they, those original builders, rejected the word of God on the stone tablets that Moses presented. We are being told the same rejection of the same person has happened in both Old and New Testaments. The same stone as the word of God has been rejected, who's actually the cornerstone. But in the New Testament, that stone, the word of God that was introduced as stone, becomes flesh. This is not coincidental. It's providential. Why is this important for us? In Ezekiel, God is communicating what will be called the new covenant in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. And God is saying, it's mostly directed at the house of Israel, but he's talking about what the new covenant will be like for people after, who believe in Jesus, why they will believe. And here's the language of Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Here's what he says. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Stone, flesh, language. I'm going to remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus is the stone who became flesh. Hold on. Jeremiah 31 uses this language. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So Jesus, so God says, I'm going to take your heart of stone and turn it into flesh and write my law on your heart so that you believe me. Okay? Stone, flesh, writing the law. So Jesus is the word who was written on a stone that became the law of Moses. He's the stone that becomes flesh in the New Testament. And in between that, God says, you have a heart of stone. I'm going to turn the flesh and write my law on your heart. Hmm. This is not coincidence, it's providence. Jesus is the stone that became flesh. God has turned our stone hearts into flesh. Jesus is the word, the law that was written on stone. God will write the law, his word, on our hearts. That word stone. The stone became flesh. Our heart of stone becomes flesh. This is not coincidental language. God is putting it all together. This is providential language.
the word that could be written on stone in the wilderness that was rejected by the builders, the religious leaders in the Old Testament, becomes flesh. It's rejected by the builders, the leaders in the New Testament. But God says, no, people will accept me. They will believe. Why? Using the same analogy that literally explains who Jesus is and what Jesus did from his revelation to them on the stone tablets, writing the law, then becoming flesh, still the stone, but now in the flesh. God uses the same analogy to literally explain how you and I have come to believe. So the stone that was rejected in the Old Testament that had his law, God says, your heart is a stone like that that will reject. So I'm going to remove that stone and make it a heart of flesh and then write my law on it. The people rejected God when he was written on the stone. So he said, all right, I'm going to come in the flesh so that people will believe in me. The word of God, the cornerstone, now helps us to not trust in our flesh. So why should we care about this? What does this mean? We are so made in the image of God that almost every metaphor used to describe Jesus, God uses to describe us. Jesus is the light. We are children of light. Jesus is the son of God. We are sons of God. He's the heir to the throne. We are co-heirs. He's the priest. We are royal priests. He's the stone that became flesh. We had a heart of stone that God turned into flesh. He's the word that wrote his law on stone tablets. God removes the stone tablets from our hearts and writes his law on it, giving a picture of what he did in the Old Testament. He's the word. So he tells us to be more responsible for our words. Almost every metaphor used to describe Jesus describes us. Stone, flesh, word, law is all Jesus and it's all us. The word is in us and so the word guides the way we use our words. Words create and they clarify, but words can also destroy. This is why God says this in James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I'm so looking forward to that day. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. Listen, if he doesn't stumble to what he says, not what he does. If we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. 
for every kind of beast and bird. Listen to all this language. Listen to this. It's the word. He's, the cre- listen to how he's going back to creation right now in James. Listen to this. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. He's going back to creation language. But now his emphasis is the word. The word that created then is in us, but we can destroy with those words. So he's now using that same language in the creation imagery to say that we have tamed all these things, but we have to tame the word of God, the words that come from us. But no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Jesus is the word so that he would come into us and would affect our words because being made in God's image is being able to create. And we create destruction or we create good. This is why God says your words, Matthew 12, 36 or 37, by every word you will be judged or acquitted. Your words matter, even the ones you type online. They matter. So do your words indicate that the word that became a stone, that became flesh, do your words show that your heart of stone has been removed with flesh and have the law written on it? I'm not talking about all of us say dumb stuff from time to time. I do. But do your words, this isn't a question, it's a statement. Your words reveal your heart. And it's important because Jesus is the word. And he said, I'm going to write my law on your heart the way I wrote it on the stone tablets in the Old Testament. But this time, I'm going to remove the stone tablets of your heart and give you stone, make it a heart of flesh, and then put that in you so that you would believe it and that you would worship. So now because of that, because the word is in you, be careful how you use your words towards others. Why? Because we want to have a unifying speech. That's why Ephesians 4 says, be careful how you speak. The verse that convicts me all the time is coarse joking. Don't use that language. Why? Because the word that created the world is in you and is recreating you so that you can create a place for others of unity under Jesus Christ. This is why we evangelize, we communicate. You don't make disciples without communicating. We must take seriously that Jesus is the word. It's not just clever language. It's all connected and where God is saying, listen, I'm bringing all of you into it. When God said, when I, let's make man in our image, you want to be like us? He meant it. That even though we sin, he still says all of the language that describes, almost all the language that describes Jesus, describes us. This is insane. And yet many of us don't feel like reading this word. 
at the very least, we owe God at least an attempt at an endless fascination with his word. As you see, all these things come together. This is not coincidence. It's providence. The question is, if the word is in you, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to complain about your responsibilities? Complain about what you have to do? I can't answer that. I can only present it as a possibility to consider. Father, we thank you for the reality of your word. It's incredible that the word that said, let there, let there be, then became a word written on stone tablets. And then that word was rejected by the people, the builders of the tabernacle. They rejected you. So you came in the flesh. You were still the word, but now you're coming in the flesh to communicate so that they don't reject you. And many in the New Testament, when you came, still rejected you and didn't even make the connection that you were God and rejecting you was no different than the Jews rejecting your word on stone tablets through Moses. Even down to the detail, like Moses' face shone like the sun because he was talking to the sun, and then Jesus' face shone like the sun and had Moses show up again and have another conversation on another mountain. You are incredible in your word. is. But then that all that language you use to describe our salvation, that we had hearts of stone, and you didn't write your law on hearts of stone. You removed the stone, made it flesh, like you made Jesus flesh, and you wrote the law on our hearts. You gave us faith to believe it and to see it as true. In the same way that Jesus coming in the flesh from the stone, you took the stone tablets of our hearts that we reject, will reject you and made them hearts of flesh so we would accept you. So, Father, I pray to varying degrees that you would help us to take seriously your word and to take seriously the responsibility of how we use our words. We owe you at least that. And thank you that you create all this imagery that is exclusively about Jesus. And you show us, now it's about you too. May we live in light of that reality, despite some of the circumstances of our lives that challenge our devotion. May we look at how intricate you put all this in your word and grow in an endless fascination of appreciation and obedience to you for your glory and for our good. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we've got a, a couple questions here. Um, but first, a quick word from our sponsor, uh, Moses Schoen, new line of skincare products. So you can look out for that. Schoen? I know Sephora has it. <laughs> um, first question here, uh, why was God threatened by the unified effort to build the Tower of Babel? The people were unified in language while building the tower, but was that the unified power of God? Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's a good question. I don't necessarily think God was threatened, but God was highlighting if these people with this same unified word of disunity, right? Because this was unified, disunified by Genesis 3, by the word of Satan and the, the fall, right? Why would God be threatened? It wasn't so much that he was threatened, but it was a statement of reality that like, look, these people are not gonna obey what we said as long as they have a unified voice that is disunity towards my voice, towards our voice. 
So I'm going to change the language because that made people separate and do exactly what God said. Go into all the world and go in different, for whatever, well, we'll get into this when we get to Genesis 11. So I'm not going to say much more, but I'll say this. The fact that God separated these and had people go in different directions both fulfilled his word, but it also did another thing that we'll see when we get to Deuteronomy, when we get to uh, Genesis 11. But I don't think it was threatened. It was more a statement of fact that these people, because right, there's strength in numbers, right? Majority rules. If everyone's unified, this is what we're doing. That's not the unity. That's not the unified voice that God wanted to have. We don't have any other questions, actually. Fantastic. I'm fine with it. I'm tired after these joints. I'm good. I'm not offended at all. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, one more. Tell them to call uh, Sephora. They're open today till 5. <laughs> um, okay. This one, this question is, what do you make of the first stone made by God being broken by Moses and a new stone being made by Moses? Is this a metaphor or foreshadowing of Jesus' death and resurrection? a nice question. I plead the fifth. <laughs> I, to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know if that's the point. I don't think that that was the point of what Moses, I don't think that's the point of the story. Could you imply that? I don't know. I think you could, may, maybe. I wouldn't teach it as fact, but I would teach it as interesting. I'd say this is an interesting thought. I wouldn't, because that's more allegory to me where it's not rooted in historical fact. What I did was an allegory because I'm using the exact words of what God is saying and then showing you how there's a historical way that all of it connects. So that would be more allegorical. I'm not saying it's wrong. I just wouldn't stand up here and teach it. That meant this. I would say something like, I can't prove this from the Bible, but this is what I think. When I use that kind of language, I don't, I can't, I may think it's true, but I can't really say biblically. But other stuff I can say, even if I'm wrong, here's why I think that. Here's what was said here. This language, I know that God is not random. I know that. Like, God is too meticulous. So when he uses language, I take it seriously. God isn't just like, oh, okay, let me think about it. All right, I'll just, heart of stone, heart of flat. No, no, no. God is speaking. God isn't, he doesn't, <laughs> there's nothing that God says is not intentional. Right. right? So I just, I just, that's my default. Whenever God speaks, it has a purpose. It's not just random. Everything that Jesus said or God or the prophets, it's all got from God. So, that's a starting point where I can build from that. But that would be somewhat of an allegorical thing. I like the way it sounds, but I wouldn't say it's the word of God, though. Uh, we have a question, too, about um, the unification language of languages in Acts 2. Does that help us have a, any kind of better understanding of what the gifts of tongues is and what it represents? Well, this is so here's the thing, though, right? Tongues in Acts 2 was to unify people under the word of God. It was to give credence that these people, this, this tongue came from the spirit of God that came from Jesus whom you crucified, right? That was the purpose of that unifying word. This is why when, because, you know, the Samaritans and the Jews had a lot of beef. Only the disciples knew that Jesus and John 4 went to Samaria for two days and that people believed that. No one else knew that. The woman at the well, Jesus goes down to Samaria for two days. Samaritans and Jews hated each other, right? So when the disciple apostles hear that the Samaritans are saved, they're like, wait a minute, they're saved? Like they, they didn't understand what was happening. 
They didn't understand that this was for all people and going to incorporate everyone. That's why Paul says in Genesis 3 that the great mystery of God is that the Gentiles are included in the plan of salvation. He says that's the greatest mystery that he's now allowed to say. That's a crazy thought when you think about all the stuff about Jesus that should be the greatest mystery. Paul says in Genesis 3 is that the Gentiles were saved. So these, the Jews had no idea how far this was going to extend. So when they heard that the Samaritans are saved in Acts 8, it said the apostles went down to see. They were like, man, ain't no way that they're experiencing salvation. So when they said they had and they laid hands on them, the tongues represented, oh, the Lord is with them. Like they're speaking. This is why in Acts 10, when Peter goes to Cornelius, it said while he was still talking, tongues fell on them and they spoke. And he was like, oh, this is genuine. They didn't have any other way to understand that God and the plan of salvation was extended to all these people except for tongues. And then Acts 2, tongues was a unifying thing. Then tongues became a gift that you can use, but ironically, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, don't use it unless there's an interpretation. Why? Because it causes confusion because you don't understand the word. And God is not the author of confusion. So if you're going to speak in the language that people won't understand, have an interpreter so that you can be edified. If you can't, then don't use that in public context. Because if an unbeliever is there, they're going to be like, these people are wild. So tongues is not meant to be something where people are just yelling up in church. That's not the purpose of it. It's not a mark of your maturity. It was a mark where God was distinguishing these people are part of the kingdom. So I'm going to give you, and there was a redemption of Babel. I confused the languages. Now let's bring them. That's why they were like, how are they talking in our voice? They understood it when it was there, right? They understood it. And, and the Gentiles, in, in a situation like this, there's no... The, we, there's no language that unifies us in the same way that she spoke in English, and then we wouldn't be clear was you weren't speaking in tongues. It'd be like you might sound a little country or something, but it's not like, you know, when I go to New Orleans sometimes, they'd be like, oh boy, everybody be like, guarantee that boy out here. <laughs> like, what? I'd just be like, hallelujah, fam. I don't even know what. I'm not even sure what you said, but I'm sure that somehow it was about God or something. They're like, nah, boy, I tell you, I want to go there and get that back. I said, all I heard was back, man. Ain't nothing wrong with my back, but if you want to. <laughs> I, mean, I'm, I used to go to New Orleans every year and speak to kids, and I was like, wow. There's certain parts of New Orleans that was like, man, this, I'm, I'm, I find out in Revelation, man, it's at Revelation 7. I have no idea what you're talking about. So I don't think tongues is what is the way people are, are using it today in a lot of ways. I don't think it's intended for that. Its purpose initially was to prove that salvation has gone to everybody, not to say if you don't have it, you're not really saved. <laughs> But that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> it's a whole different. We're not there yet. I don't even. I don't want no emails. I don't want any emails from people who think that. So, uh, could you just give again uh, your three high-level points, like what the what the headings were kind of called? Yeah. So the first point was Jesus is the Word, so that because of personal providence, it's a personal. Words are personal. They clarify. They do those things. All right. Sometimes you'd be getting in the zone, just be preaching. Don't even remember your own stuff. All right, so you got Jesus is the word because it's, it's a personal. Then you got the second point was Jesus is the word so that creation, all creation can be unified under one word. Right, so you see that from the, from the, 
the unity in Genesis 1 to all the disunity, and then you get back to Revelations, and it's all unity again. Even though the languages are different, the unified word is Jesus, right? So he's the word, and then third is Jesus is the word, is the word so that he became, to become stone, to become flesh, to show us that we are like Jesus as we are stone and flesh, just like him. Uh, we have another question that's um, kind of asking about God writing laws on our hearts. Uh, what, what are the things that he writes on our hearts? You know, the Ten Commandments, loving, loving God and your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Like, how, how do we understand that? I think what God is just saying is the things that I command, people will believe because you won't have the heart of stone rejecting you, being able to, the people who hear who believe, right? Jesus made it clear, my sheep know my voice. So there are going to be people who don't are not Christians and they can't hear the same things. They'll hear this stuff and be like, man, what was he talking about? I couldn't get over the headband. I don't know what he was. You know, you'll be focused on that. Well, other people who understand this might be like, oh, wow, this makes sense. Wow, you're, you're, you, you feel the impact. You feel a certain, like, wow, this is, and you feel something like, wow, Lord, this is crazy. You know, that, so the law is not necessarily equating to the Ten Commandments on our hearts, but just what, what God, God is saying, I'm going to change your hearts and put the law in your heart. You won't need to memorize the Ten Commandments and the Torah. You're going to live in such a way because you agree you're going to have the conviction to honor me and obey me, which is consistent of everything. So it's not about memorization or particular laws. It's more about the conviction to obey my word I'm going to make possible because you couldn't do it. You rejected the stone. Now I'm going to, I sent the word in the flesh. Since you had a heart of stone, I'm going to make your stone a heart of flesh so you can receive it. And the same way people could receive it from Jesus when he was in the flesh. So it's really just a play on the literal analogy. It's an analogy on the literal manifestation of Christ and saying that's, he's in you. That's the point. Uh, we have a couple more questions that are a little bit longer and I think a little bit more involved and in, might be better for a conversation. So. Just ask one of them? Yeah. Just ask one more? Uh, it's like a, three paragraphs. So. Okay. Is, there, is that just, is it all of them are like well, that? Yeah. So what, what I'm, I'm, I think we should do maybe with these is just have an offline conversation with the, the person, all right. you know, for the rest of you. Well, if they're here, you yeah. can just come talk yeah, to exactly. me. And then if you're not, then just, uh, if you're a member, just text me or whatever, whatever. We'll do it that way. I'll trust Brady. Because sometimes these questions do get long, and I appreciate them, but it's already blue after 10, 12, and, and your kids are already tempting the other children's ministry people. So, <laughs> And you know who they are. <laughs> Jesus was not just the word that became stone. That's actually not what we look back to. We look back the word that became flesh. And we look back to the word that became flesh, and he proved it by having his flesh badly beaten, ripped apart. Now, this is something that we do every single Sunday, and there are times we don't mention this because by default we believe people know this. But the reality is, is when God asks you to remember something, he asks you to remember it because you believe it. So this is the only part of the service where this isn't an invitation for everyone to participate in unless you're a believer in Jesus. Because this is about remembering who God is and giving glory to him and honoring him and, and gratitude that he, that he died on the cross, that his, his body was broken and blood came out. This is what that represents. 
And there may be some here who don't believe that, and we're glad you came. There's no shame in that. But we would ask you not to participate in that because the Bible says you shouldn't. And because we believe the word, we try to apply the word. And to do that, if you are not a believer yet, don't participate in this. But if you're, if you, I'd love to talk. I'll be here. Skins are playing on TV, so I'll hang out a little bit. If it were a home game, I'd be like, here's a couple other people you can talk to. And I'd tell you who. <laughs> it's a home game, I'd be John. I would have ended 20 minutes ago if it was a home game. That's, I, y'all need to know that. <laughs> so having said that, we're talking about the word that became flesh so that we, the, our flesh, would not be beaten, metaphorically speaking, in eternity. So by the grace of God, we're grateful that Jesus became a human being, died on the cross, his blood that was shed. And so this act is how we remember the central reason why we're all here. And so let's eat this together, reminding that his body was broken for us. And this cup represents, it is not the blood of Christ, but it reminds us that the blood that was shed on our behalf is for real. And this is why we do this weekly. Not so that we can become over-familiar, but so that we don't forget the reality of what he's done for us. Let's drink together. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Man, Lord, your word is incredible. Like, there's stuff that you have in your word, Lord, that is just insane. And that's, it's amazing that you put all this stuff there, and for so many years, we've just glossed over it. If nothing else, if nothing else, Lord, again, whatever I said that was true, may it inspire a further desire to read your word, to understand it, and to not make excuses, to not use the words, our words that you gave us to make excuses for the word that you put in us. Help us, Lord. My sermon doesn't change anybody's heart. It may make a couple of people agree, but other than that, I don't have that authority. That's, that comes from you. So I pray that whatever was true and that whatever, however you want people to respond, remind them, Lord, to press in, to believe, to spend time in your word and see the beautiful nature of it. Not just look at what does it mean to me directly, but what are you doing in your word for our glory, for your glory and our good? Thank you, Lord, for everything that you've put in your word, stuff that we see and believe and stuff that we don't even understand yet. May that take place throughout this series and throughout the rest of our lives and then throughout eternity. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Don't forget, if you're a member of the church, you probably got core groups this week. You're also getting an email from me reminding you that next Sunday will be the Sanders Christmas uh, event from 5 p.m. to midnight. Next week, we're going to get into... Uh, the creation of Adam and Eve and being made in the image of God. I'm looking forward to that. I'm excited. And uh, now I've, I've represented enough. I can't believe that the, 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 the soccer team lost. I don't even, they get on my nerves. And so now I'm taking this off. <laughs> <laughs>